Yesterday we covered a substantial part of the beginning of what's called the progress of insight. And today I want to fill in some of the details towards the second half. But I want to review just briefly uh, what we covered previously because we got to a place Uh, what's called mature arising and passing away uh, where practice is really smooth and about as good as it gets as far as enjoyable and the transition from that to the next half of the progress of insight is an important transition to really understand uh, what's going on there because it's so counterintuitive to what we might expect So I want to just review uh, some of the challenges and the benefits of what we've covered so far. But I also want to acknowledge that the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is that there is uh, suffering. And yesterday I reminded you of the kind of suffering that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the wars and hunger and economic collapse that we read about in the news. I'm talking about our own very personal day-to-day suffering of anxiety and fear, depression, uh, impatience, anger, irritation, (coughs) wanting what we can't have, having to put up with what we don't want. And these forms of experience that are just not satisfactory. And there are uh, three grades of this kind of suffering. There's the transgressive defilements where we are acting out uh, some of these sufferings in a way that causes harm to ourself and others. And then there's the obsessive kind of uh, defilement where we may not be acting it out, we may not be speaking it to anyone, but we're obsessing. The mind is just preoccupied, maybe overwhelmed with uh, ruminating and scheming and strategizing and just really caught in uh, a tangled uh, mind stream of suffering. And then there's the third kind of defilement, which is it lies dormant in the mind stream until conditions are right or ripe and then it sprouts and we are besieged by obsession and or acting them out. So there are these three gradients of of suffering and the Buddha offered three trainings in the Noble Eightfold Path to address them. And the first training is the training in sila or purification of conduct which is where we uh, started yesterday the purification of conduct practicing the precepts is a mindfulness practice of noticing or remembering to recognize the intention before speaking or acting so that you can purify that intention of aversion or attachment, or confusion, before acting it out. So that hopefully you'll be acting with more 
at least without aversion, without attachment, and without confusion or delusion. That addresses the transgressive uh, defilements, the ways that we cause harm to ourselves and others, and that is really, that is the practice of compassion. If we want to act in a way that we don't cause harm to ourselves or others, that's an act of compassion. Nevertheless, we can still be obsessed, and we saw in the uh, subsequent several knowledges that we studied uh, previously that, in fact, we do, it is quite a challenge to get a handle on all the obsessions, cataloging all the obsessions, uh, ways that we obsess, ways that we get upset, ways that we suffer uh, in the world. And this is this is addressed by the development of uh, mindfulness or the practice of mindfulness to the point of some continuity because the continuity of mindfulness is an indicator of the degree of concentration or collectedness or samadhi in the mind. So the Buddha taught samadhi as the practice for addressing obsessing, obsession. So, but samadhi is really uh, a direct result of the continuity of mindfulness. So in our practice of mindfulness, what we have to do as we looked at yesterday, is we have to purify our view of what it is we're doing. And as I acknowledged yesterday, mindfulness is remembering to observe and recognize the present moment's experience. And you can choose an object, as I have indicated you in the practice we've been doing, to attend to the rising and falling of the abdomen as you breathe in and out. And you can use that object, rising and falling, as the present moment experience to remember, to recognize. And if you use that with some continuity, you will temporarily, and depending on how continuous you can be uh, aware of that chosen object, your mind won't be obsessing. Your mind will be on that object, connecting, sustaining on the rising, connecting, sustaining on the falling, over and over and over again. And if the stream of that awareness is steady enough, there's no room for thoughts of the past or the future or irritation or anger or desire or frustration or disappointment or judgment. They just don't have any room to get in to the stream of consciousness that is solely dedicated and devoted to this recognizing the present moment's experience. So this is how we develop samadhi and address the obsessing, uh, the suffering of obsession or obsessing. So that is the beginning of the purification of view, number one. And as we continue to do that, as we continue to develop this mindfulness, mindful recognition of present moment experience, 
we are going to, since we're practicing Vipassana and not just practicing for jhana or concentration, we're going to become aware, gradually, of more experiences. Our attention is quite naturally going to be called to other predominant sensations in the body, other predominant experiences in the environment, sounds, smells, temperature, and other experiences that are going on in our mind, whether they're emotional or uh, cognitive processes. And as we, as our attention is called away from the primary object to these other predominant experiences, then we're going to grow in uh, uh, cataloging uh, the kinds of experiences that we have that we can be aware of. But as we do that, we're going to confront some difficult, unpleasant uh, sensations in the body. We're going to recover some unpleasant memories in the, in the heart. And we're going to anticipate some anxiety-provoking future experiences. And so we're going to be dealing with a lot of uh, very intense, at times, emotional uh, obsessing. So the, the challenge for us then is to not just to stay with the primary object to keep the obsessing defilements away, but in the development of insight or vipassana, we want to open to those experiences. So now we have to open to the experience of these, this obsessing mind and recognize that that is the present moment's experience. So when, for example, uh, desire or lusting enters the mind and we're kind of caught up in fantasy, fantasizing, kind of anticipating, planning, scheming, strategizing how we're going to get what we want or who we want or the experience we want, uh, as we're doing that, you know, the mind is really caught up but if we can become aware, if we can begin, if we can remember to recognize, oh, this that I'm experiencing now is the nature of lusting. Then just by being aware of it rather than caught in it, we begin to step back from the involvement with the suffering, obsessing mental state. And that is a moment of awareness. And a moment of awareness is always wholesome. Even if what we are aware of, in this case, lusting, is unwholesome. So this is, this is kind of a challenge for us. Uh, as we learn how to be aware of these suffering states of mind... And until the momentum of awareness gets strong enough or continuous enough, we're going to think that we're mostly suffering, obsessing and suffering. But in time, as we get familiar with being aware of these unwholesome states of mind, then we'll begin to see, oh, that there's, there's a continuity of awareness. It's, the obsessing might still be going on, but we're not caught in it so much. We're not just thinking about it. We're actually aware of it. And this is where we're able to clarify our doubt, the purification or knowledge uh, of, of discerning conditionality. 
where we see how these things arise due to causes and conditions. And we're not so entangled in them. We also begin to recognize that all of these experiences, they arise, they last for a while, and then they pass away. Dukkha arises, it passes a while, it exists for a while, it passes away. Sensations in the body, same. Thoughts in the mind, feelings in the heart, they arise and pass away. And they, they are so unstable, they come whenever they want. We, we don't invite them. And when they arise, we can't really just kind of get rid of them. So we begin to recognize what's called the anatta characteristic. We see that they're impermanent. That's the anicca characteristic. We see that they're really unsatisfactory. Nobody ever enjoys those defilements. We have the dukkha characteristic. And then we see that they, they have a life of their own. They arise due to conditions. We don't invite them. They leave whenever they, well, whenever they darn well please, not, not when we want them to. They are not amenable to our control. That's the anatta characteristic. So we begin vipassana practice. When we begin to recognize these three characteristics, we have begun vipassana practice. And as if those defilements and those obsessing states of mind weren't bad enough, having to deal with the fact that everything's impermanent, everything's unsatisfactory, and everything is also out of our control is equally overwhelming, or maybe more so. And so just accommodating, just gaining these insights and feeling, accepting them, acknowledging them, uh, uh, agreeing to them, so to speak, is, is a challenge. But if we persist and we keep, you know, as, as I mentioned yesterday, there's a lot of uh, struggle, there's a lot of impatience, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of pain in the body, there's a lot of pain in the heart. But if we can keep our faith keep our aspiration clear and keep uh, our, the clarity of what we're, actually, what we're actually doing is just remembering to recognize present moment's experience, then we, can, then we can stabilize. And we stabilize in what is first uh, the immature arising and passing away. When we're just able to see that things arise and pass away and that's just the way it is and we have some amount of acceptance some amount of equanimity. Equanimity is present in every moment of awareness. But we don't recognize the equanimity because the intensity of the object is too strong. It's too much suffering. It's too intense. It's too unpleasant. And the equanimity is quite weak. But when the momentum of mindfulness is quite continuous, then the equanimity becomes apparent. And you can stay there with really dramatic stuff happening and not get quite so jerked around by it. But at the beginning of uh, rising and passing away, where we're seeing this rapid or rapid arising and passing away of all kinds of phenomena, this is when the mind is doing what it does unhindered because we're able to observe mindfully all of the hindrances to practice. Desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness, sloth and torpor. We don't get caught in them. And when the mind can do what it does unhindered, which is to know, it knows everything. Quickly, rapidly. And so the pace of, the pace of noting or noticing 
just accelerates tremendously at the beginning of arising and passing away, where you can't keep up with it. You can't, you can't possibly name everything that you're knowing. You're knowing it, but it's going by so fast, you don't have time to formulate the words or even uh, the idea of some time of what it is that you're seeing. And yet, you know them. Nothing is escaping you, the quality of attention or the quality of mindfulness at that time. And when the mind, I say, is uh, unhindered in observing present moment's experience, it takes great delight. And here we start to um, have some of what I call the spiritual goodies arising. We get a lot of joy. We have a sense of effortless energy. Sometimes we have this piercing clarity. We have great faith in, in confidence in the teachings and in ourselves to do it and in the practice to be effective. We can have a lot of tranquility, a lot of non-reactivity. No matter what comes up, the mind doesn't react, whether it's extremely uh, unpleasant or unfamiliar, where the equanimity is, is quite strong. Still, when these kinds of experiences arise, these spiritual goodies, we have been looking for them for so long. <laughs> you know, it's something we've wanted out of our practice for so long, a little bit of relief from all the dukkha and all the struggle, that we indulge in them. Now we get, when it's calm, we just say, yeah, finally, wow, okay, chill out. Or we get some kind of uh, ex- rapture or joy or ecstasy, and we're just kind of like flying high, and we think, wow, this is it. And this is the distinctive characteristic of these spiritual goodies at arising and passing away, is we think, we just assume, we don't even think, we just assume this is it. This is what, this is what they're talking about. You know, this is Nibbana, this is enlightenment, this is, I'm done, I'm finished, thank goodness. And as I said yesterday, you know, uh, when these kinds of experiences are happening, you will think that this is so special that nobody else could have ever experienced this. Certainly not your teacher. <laughs> and and that's, that's how you know that you're really stuck. That's how you know that you're really caught when you think that. Or you think, we attach to these, um, we attach to these spiritual goodies, as I mentioned just either by craving craving them more of them and wanting them and looking for them and trying to make them happen, or through conceit. Conceit is kind of taking pride in them, like, aren't I something? This is so good. I am really doing good. And it's so much better now than it was before, this kind of comparing mind, this conceit also. So it's either with craving, conceit, or wrong views. Wrong views is thinking, this is happening to me. I'm making this happen, and it is happening to me. And these three, conceit, craving, and wrong view, are what are known as the three papancha, three ways of just proliferating thought. But we are so busy noticing all of these spiritual goodies and everything that's just arising and passing away so quickly, we don't notice these assumptions or these thoughts around conceit, craving, and wrong view. Don't bother me with conceit, craving, wrong view. I'm just having too much fun with, you know, rapture and joy and bliss and effortless energy. But, you know, a skillful teacher has to remind you. This is good, isn't it? 
you know, joy is really good. Bliss is really good. Effortless energy is really good, right? Don't hang on. There's better things ahead. What? You've got to be kidding. Well, some teachers will say that just to try to get you to let go. If you can let go of these, there's better stuff, eh? <laughs> and, of course, you can't believe it because this is pretty good. But if you, if you can remember that in each moment something's being known, in each moment something's being known, you can gradually loosen your fascination and your indulgence and your gratification with those experiences. They still arise. Joy still arises. Bliss still arises. Effortless energy still arises. But you're no longer indulging in them. You're no longer identified with them. You're no longer assuming that they're uh, enlightenment or nibbana, and you're not feeling gratified by them. This is the most important point. You don't take delight in them. They're there. It's just bliss. It's just bliss. I mean, you know, come on. It's only joy is being known, bliss is being known, you know, clarity is being known, effortless energy is being known. So what? You know, it's just, right? Well, you can see how challenging it would be to get to that kind of space. But, you know, if, if you keep going, you'll... It's like a scenic turnout on the route, as I mentioned yesterday. You know, when you're going to from here to there and on the journey there's a scenic turnout. turnout. You pull off to the side of the road, you get out of the car, you look around, you take in the view, the sunset, the mountains, the river, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long does it take before you get bored? You know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Maybe if you're really patient, an hour. Try to stay there forever. That'd be boring. That would not be a scenic turnout anymore. That would be just a painful place to be. Well, that's what happens with these states of mind. I know it sounds like, how, how are you going to get sick of joy and bliss? And Well, try it. You'll see. And so we can gradually learn to let go of indulging in them. And they're just there and it's okay and you're not caught up in them. This is when you have mature arising and passing away. And then the equanimity becomes really obvious. Even these spiritual goodies don't jerk you around. You don't get entangled in them. They're happening. They're being known. You don't get involved in them with conceit, craving, and wrong view. So as I said yesterday, this is about the sweetest, the sweetest uh, place in the practice. There's another thing that happens here, though, that I want to mention because it happens. Sometimes when we are experiencing great joy or ecstasy, we lose consciousness, as I say, out through the top. We're just kind of like, oh, you know, and you just, you just lose consciousness. And in fact, there's some spiritual traditions that that's their, that's their goal in, in their religion is to lose consciousness through ecstasy. Well, it happens when you're practicing Vipassana, but that's not the goal. But there can be this moment or moments of what we call oblivion, where you're just not present. So too with uh, tranquility. You can get so calm and so still in the body and the mind that I call it losing consciousness down through the bottom. Where you just get so tranquil, you just 
drop into an unconscious place and there's another experience of oblivion. You're there, you're sitting there, but you're not aware of anything. This is oblivion. So too with, with rapture, with tranquility, sometimes concentration or the samadhi, a combination of tranquility and the noting mind uh, gets so uh, smooth that we just stop noticing. And it's a similar kind of oblivion that we can fall into or the mind can hang out in for a period of time. Sometimes even sloth and torpor. You know, it sounds kind of peculiar that you'd have so much energy and so much pleasure and so much delight that there can be moments of just fall asleep. Medical people, doctors, know about these micro-sleeps. You know, in the midst of, you know, working these long hours, sometimes, right in the most demanding times, they just, they just lose it, lose awareness, lose consciousness for a moment or two, and then just come back to wakefulness. So there are a couple of other reasons for uh, that kind of oblivion, both uh, equanimity and um, distraction, as well as what we call faltering of mindfulness. So there's a half a dozen different ways that we can lose um, consciousness or lose recognition of the present moment. And it's good to know that there, this happens so that you don't mistake it for anything else. So this is mature arising and passing away. And as I said, it's really... Because the objects are so clear, they may be fast, but they're very clear, and the continuity of awareness is apparent. You're able to monitor, you're able to recognize the continuity of the mindfulness itself. Okay? And we've gotten here because as we've, every step of the way, we have to reaffirm our understanding that practice is just something being known. Every moment, something being known, something being known, something being known. And if we keep doing that, then we continue practice. And so even at mature arising and passing away, that's what we continue to do as best we can. You can't notice everything that's going by because there's too many and they're going too fast. But the mindfulness is so steady that you know that you're not missing much. Okay. I took all that time just to bring us up to as good as it gets. Now, the next stage or the next phase of practice is where we really refine our understanding of dukkha. Now, we have been experiencing dukkha. We've been experiencing a lot of physical discomfort. That's dukkha dukkha. We've been experiencing a lot of uh, oppression in the mind mental dukkha. But now we're going to refine our understanding of dukkha even more. And it happens when the pace of mindful awareness continues to pick up faster to the point where you see both the disappearance of the object 
you see the disappearance of the mind that saw the object disappear. And you also see the disappearance of that moment of awareness. Well, that's all good theory, but what this means is suddenly it feels like your practice has really gone to pieces. You can't, you can't, you don't, you can't find the continuity. Objects are very unclear and very dispersed. You get very frustrated. You feel pretty weary. You feel like my practice is going backwards. Things are moving fast. You know that. But you can't distinguish objects, one from the other. Sometimes you feel like there's no objects. You're just sitting there kind of like blot out. Uh, and there's no clear uh, continuity to this awareness. So up to this point, we've had this ongoing sense that this awareness is there every moment. You know, this awareness is there every moment. There's never an object arise without awareness and never awareness without an object. They kind of rise in pairs. Now, we don't have any sense that there's any continuity to this awareness. Now we're seeing the impermanence of the awareness also. Well, this is really destabilizing. And I'll tell you subjectively what it kind of feels like is you can't remember if you were mindful the last moment or not. And in fact, you can't remember what mindfulness is or how to be mindful or what to be mindful of. And so you, you, you just think, am I doing anything? <laughs> you know, you're still the mindfulness is there, but you don't recognize it. And it's because you see the impermanence of it. You see how fleeting it is, moment to moment. Everything gets really thin and very, very unsatisfactory. Pra- practice just really is not satisfying. Whereas just before, at a rising and passing way, it was so satisfying, it was so clear, it was just like, it couldn't get any better, and it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it gets, better, it gets better knowledge, but it doesn't get better as a, an experience. So at this, at this uh, beginning of what's called the dukkha jnanas, the knowledge of dukkha is, is arising, this, this stage is called the knowledge of dissolution, where you see the dissolution not only of objects, but of the observer, what you thought was the observer or the observing, is also no more substantial than anything else you've observed. This is the second rolling up the mat stage because it's so unfamiliar, it's so unusual, it's so counterintuitive, and it's so unrewarding, so unsatisfactory that you you really do not want to keep practicing. And you'll want to, again, roll up the mat, go home. At a a kind of a a psychological level, um, what's actually happening here, up to this point, with the rising and passing away, mature rising and passing away, as you experience an object, a sensation in the body, for example, you know where that sensation is in the body. You know, you have a, you have a kind of a conceptual overlay with the experience. There's the experience of sensation and you have a map, a kind of a, a physical map of the body to kind of place it in its location and, and what it is. But now at this point in the practice, the noting is so fast, your mind doesn't have time to construct a concept of what you're observing. And so you're just observing raw data, you're just observing raw experience without any concept 
of what it is. And so it's very disorienting to lose this conceptual explanation and understanding of how things work in the mind and the body. And it's because we no longer have a conceptual understanding of what we're experiencing. We're just experiencing. We know we're experiencing, but it's very unsatisfying when we don't have a concept to it. So, I mean, I know that's kind of theoretical and technical, but it's as if you were experiencing uh, and didn't understand anything that you were experiencing. Something like being in a foreign country. Not only a foreign country, among foreign everything. It's like you're experiencing it, but you don't know, you don't know anything. You don't know what it is. You don't know how to understand it. It doesn't, can't make sense of it. So this is a very unsatisfactory, <laughs> this is a very, to say the least, uh, unsatisfactory kind of experience. And what happens then, there's this series, you can see, it says the uh, Dukanyana's uh, second rolling up the mat stage. It is the emptiness of both object and observer. So we've been seeing the emptiness of objects. We've been seeing how insubstantial they are. They're anatta. But we're also seeing the emptiness of the observer or observing. There's no, set, there's no one here. There's no substantial enduring thing here. Now, because this is so unpleasant, the next three knowledges are called the Vipassana knowledge of danger, the Vipassana knowledge of disenchantment, oh, the, of fear, danger, and disenchantment. What they refer to is, we see, we come to these understandings that whatever is being known, we're afraid of it. It's not that we're afraid of snakes and dark and public speaking. It's like any object that calls our attention, we become suspicious of. We see that it's not, it's, it's, it's not good. It's impermanent, it's fleeting, it's insubstantial, it's not going to bring any satisfaction. And so you fear to get entangled in them. So the mind can feel a lot of fear. Not of specific things, but just a lot of fear, unspecific fear. Unspecific fear. It just doesn't want to get entangled in anything. It just doesn't want to really experience anything. And so too with the feeling of danger. It's like we know that if we get close to or get entangled with anything, it's dangerous because it's going to lead to suffering. And so the mind, the, the knowledge is, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't, don't, don't get entangled there. You know, f- there's a kind of fear and there's a kind of a danger that you just don't go there. And the third of these um, insight knowledges of dukkha is disillusionment. Whatever we thought, or whatever we have thought about these experiences of body, mind, heart, past, present, future, we're now disillusioned with them. We, we see through the illusion of them being permanent, or enjoyable, or satisfactory, or offering security, or you just see through. You just, you just understand this about all experience. It's not what it looks to be. It's not what it appears to be. And, and the mind just doesn't want to go there. It's, it's there, but it doesn't want to go there. It doesn't want to get entangled in any of them. Well, 
when you're experiencing this kind of fear and danger and disillusionment and kind of disrupted sense of self because you see through the illusion of self or continuity of awareness, it's pretty destabilizing. Now, let me just say that there are some people who are calling this dark night of the soul stage. I don't know what dark night of the soul is, but I know that there's, you know, there's some stage in, in Christian uh, uh, theology. Uh, St. John of the Cross talks about dark night of the soul. You know, I, I, I don't use that term myself because I don't know what the dark night of the soul is, but it sounds pretty bad. <laughs> and I think that's why it kind of gets applied to this. Dukanyana. So it sounds like the dark night of the soul. Of course, there's no soul in Buddhist understanding, so where are you going? But uh, nevertheless, sometimes people can feel really distressed and uh, upset and disoriented in their life. And if you're on a three-month retreat and you get to the Dukanyanas and then the retreat ends and you go home, <laughs> you can have a hard time. Yeah. yeah because you're, you're, you don't have the equanimity yet to kind of have a balanced relationship with things and you're just seeing, you're just disillusioned with everything. Don't tell your partner. <laughs> Don't tell your employer. Just kind of muddle through. But it's, it, it, can be, it can be disruptive, just to say the least. That's why it's really um, helpful, beneficial, maybe even necessary to practice in a safe place with a trusted guide when you get to this place. Well, you, need to really, you really need to know you're safe. Physically, emotionally safe. You need to know that it's a, nobody's going to hurt you. You're not going to fall into danger like that. And to have someone that you trust, a teacher. And this is no time to find a teacher. You, you, you're, fearing, you're fearing and disillusioned with everything. So you're not going to find a teacher at this stage. You have to have a teacher from before then that you trust. So that when they say, you're doing okay, just keep noticing what you can. And these feelings of fear and danger and disillusionment and all, just keep noticing them, that you can believe them. You have faith in them. Because you, if you don't have faith in somebody, you're not going to take that. You're not going to take their word for it. That's why Mahasi Sayadaw says, you really need a teacher. You can read the book. Did I read this yesterday? I'm going to read what he says here. Let's see. The explanations of how to practice insight that I have given here in this book are perfectly sufficient for those of fair intelligence. Did I read this yesterday? Yeah. If they read this book and properly and systematically practice with strong faith, aspiration, and energy, they can surely attain the different insight knowledges as well as path knowledge and fruition, enlightenment. However, it is impossible to mention all that you might experience and all that I've mentioned here 
not all will experience. Moreover, it's impossible for a meditator's faith, aspiration, and energy to remain strong all the time, like at the Dukkanyanas. And if a person practices by following teachings based on this knowledge, intellectual knowledge, and without a teacher, they may feel doubt and uncertain, just like a person traveling in an unfamiliar place. So it is not easy for an ordinary person to attain the insight knowledges as well as past knowledge and fruition knowledge if he or she practices without a teacher who can give them careful guidance. So I would like to advise you to practice under the close guidance of an experienced teacher who can clearly explain the stages of insight knowledge up through the path knowledge of fruition knowledge, reviewing knowledge, and fruition absorption when you're going through it. After the fact, it doesn't work. So please be humble. Do not proudly think, I'm so special I don't need anyone's guidance. When you do practice, do so sincerely, and that will mean with great effort and firm practice, you can attain Nibbana. Now, even though it's clear, and I can talk about these progress of insight, and you may have some similar or familiar experiences like this, it could be very difficult still with the knowledge to navigate the terrain alone through them. Because it's really, it's not just enduring them, it's what is it you have to learn from these knowledges. Because every step of the way is we have to learn something. We're growing in insight knowledge. It's not just have an experience. Experience doesn't tell you anything. It's what happens to your understanding with that experience. We can have all kinds of experiences and not understand them correctly. Not understand them in a liberating way. So just because I'm talking about these kinds of experiences and you've had some of these kinds of experiences doesn't mean that you have the understanding or the insight. Really important to know that distinction between them. But... If we remember, and if we can reaffirm, and if we can keep it together enough to recognize what we can, when we can, as much as we can, we will gradually come through this stage of this, the knowledge of dukkha. And we come through it when we start to reaffirm to ourselves, okay, I got here through just knowing every moment something's being known and reaffirming that that's the path out of the Dukkanyanas. Every moment, something is being known. And when you can reaffirm that decision through your own practice, then you'll gradually will, will move through this uh, stage of, um, well, the Dukkha, the, the perfecting the knowledge of Dukkha. And I say it's perfecting the knowledge of Dukkha because having gone through these dukkanyanas, there will be nothing that seduces you into thinking, this is going to do it for you. It's going to be so pleasurable and so satisfying and so enduring that I'm just going to be... <sighs> Things don't have that capacity. People don't have that capacity. Experience doesn't have that capacity. And when we understand that, then we can let things be. We don't have to struggle. We don't have to pretend otherwise. We don't have to look for the impossible. This is the understanding that we have to come to at this stage of practice. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.